there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Carol Latham, who is the retired founder, president, and CEO of Thermagon, a Cleveland-based custom manufacturer of high-performance heat transfer materials for electronic components. Under her leadership, Thermagon changed the microchip industry and within five years of its launch, achieved sales of $18 million annually. She writes about her experiences in the book, A Chip Off the Silicon Block. Carol also served as a founding board member of Newbridge, a community-based arts education and career training center that addresses the needs of residents and youth who live in some of Cleveland's most challenged neighborhoods. She's been recognized by the Ohio Foundation of Independent Colleges Hall of Excellence and received her bachelor's degree in chemistry right up the street from the Ohio Wesleyan University. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You launched Thermagon to solve a serious issue with computer chips overheating uh, and developed a ceramic materials technology. However, the path you took as a single mother struggling to make ends meet in a world dominated by men is not your typical Silicon Valley success story. What alternate path did you take to ensure that Thermagon succeeded? Well, what popped up for me first was that when you take that leap of faith and you leave your job and you start out to, uh, with no money and very, very little resources and no income, it's there basically are no insurances. It's 100% risk. And even my investors had to declare in writing that they understood that it was 100% risk. And so having said that, I there were some unique things I think we did that help us uh, uh, that did help us succeed. And so I'd like to share those with you as well. Yes, please. Okay, so uh, uh, first of all, I had to figure out how to do the maximum amount of things with the least amount of money. And uh, I had I needed to develop the, 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 the technology into products. I had to develop a process. I needed to raise money and on and on and on it went. So I needed to know what would be my shortest route to revenue. So I was offered a small space at the rear of a company in Menor, Ohio, which was 40 to 50 miles away from my home. And I got this brilliant idea that, hmm, that was a long drive. Maybe I could rent out my house in Lakewood and then rent a small condo and mentor and make an attempt to live on the difference in rents, which was $700. So that was a pretty big deal for me then. And then, unfortunately, as that relationship soured and I ended up cleaning bathrooms as part of my rent. But anyway, on and on you go. I was using volunteer help at that point and was putting my process together using uh, used equipment. The used equipment dealers were pretty interesting places. Rust, rust belts, I called them. They were pretty, pretty funny. But and they, when they saw a woman coming to, they jumped out of their skin. But anyway, it was fun. So, <laughs> so I also had uh, no money to travel or to do trade shows. So I had to develop a way to figure out how to get my my name out there. So what I did was to send little blurbs about my materials to into the 
into the technical journals as new product releases. They did that for free. You could send them in and they didn't publish it one month. You just kept sending and sending until you got them published. And then what would happen is the engineers would tell the journals which one, which product they were interested in. And they would then in turn send me a list of all the interested engineers. I would call all those people very diligently and had a list of kind of questions that I asked them. And uh, I would send them, I would say, don't, don't, don't uh, take my word from the data sheet. You try it in your system and make sure uh, that what I'm telling you is true. And I would send them free samples overnight. And that became quite a hit with engineers. For the life of the company, we were known for being able to send free samples overnight to engineers. They loved that immediately. And none of our competitors, they've told me they, they couldn't, they, they, how do you do that? <laughs> I don't know, we did it. And uh, it became a competitive, one of our competitive advantages, quite frankly, it was uh, very successful. So the, the other thing is about raising money. I uh, reached out to what I thought was uh, uh, a good list of VCs, I think mostly in Silicon Valley and sent them my, what I thought was my wonderful story and I got all declined. So I needed to go to step B. So I decided, okay, I would need to reach out to angel investors and I used acquaintances that were outside my uh, family and closest friends. And so that's what I did. I found an attorney. He would write, write me a private placement memorandum uh, at on a contingency basis, meaning I didn't have to pay until I took in some money. And that became a very important tool as my packet on how to attain investors. <clears throat> my first employees uh, were unemployed and they came to me realizing just as myself that this was 100% risk. They were taking the risk as well as me and I brought them into my office and said, okay, each of us will take $1,000 a month out of the checking the account of Thermagon and we, that would be our salary for this for a start. And that was pretty unique, very low even in that those days, but they were willing to take that risk. Once I moved out of Manor and went into an old building on West 25th Street, which was really not what I could afford, but the best I could do, I soon learned that I was sitting on a gold mine of, of potential employees. So I started, as we started to grow, I, I hired women, mostly Hispanic, from our, the neighborhood around where Thermogon was on the near west side of Cleveland. Uh, we hired unskilled uh, based on their work ethic and their eagerness to learn. And then we brought them in and we trained them and brought them and we created our culture together where I really consider these employees my extended family. You could go out, I've had people write about it and I say, don't just go out and talk to the employees yourself and you'll see for yourself that they're pretty, and they were extremely loyal and we have pretty much 100% retention. And yeah, the other thing that we needed to do was figure out how we were gonna protect our technology and I really couldn't afford patents. And I got the 
bright idea that really our products couldn't be reverse engineered and I would could tell you what was in it. So it would it would work to use trade secrets rather than patent. And so, and my employees uh, getting back, they were, uh, I think they were more strict than I was about protecting every little secret, every little everything. And no one was allowed in our factory. You know, it was kind of a joke. I said, well, if I let you in, I have to shoot you at the door when you leave. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, that those are some, some of the things that I did that I think were probably unique to most people who start businesses. Yes. Did you ever consider moving out of Cleveland and, and to the West Coast to Silicon Valley to, um, you know, to increase your chances of success? Oh, yes, <laughs> of course. And I mean, that definitely because that was uh, among other things. I mean, they, I, I kind of had to presume why I was declined by the VCs, but I'm pretty sure one of the reasons was that I was in Cleveland and that it didn't seem like that made a lot of sense to them. And and also, uh, the, it was the, the economic times in which I was trying to ask for the money was not good. And I think that being a little naive on how to do this, that I didn't ask for enough money. So I think the amount I asked for was uh, suspect. I mean, you know, so, and a deal is a deal. And it costs money to do a deal on this little tiny one. I mean, you know, the percent of the whole seems like probably not a good idea. So that, uh, so I decided that, yes, I needed to stay in Cleveland. And quite frankly, the standard of living was much different than what it was in Silicon Valley. So I could, the wages, the, the, the everything uh, was at a lower, was at a, a lower price. The rents, it didn't matter what it was. And, but the, really the most important thing was that I had a, I had a support system in Cleveland. I had people I knew, I had a network and that's important when you do take that leap of faith because you're very vulnerable so you need a few people to surround you and <laughs> try to give you a kind word every now and then <laughs> yes that is important um you have a unique definition of what constitutes an entrepreneur do you mind sharing that with our listeners oh yeah i've had fun with this so uh, i i decided that really being an entrepreneur you you had to be able to succeed with the five no's, which meant that you had no products, no employees, no customers, no physical plant, and no money. And if you could do that, you qualified as an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love it. And it was very true, unfortunately. I was, you know, it took a while to, you know, fill in the little blanks. I did have this, people say, well, what did you have? Well. I did have a, this technology that I believe was, it was significant. I, I received more than 10 times the thermal conductivity of any materials in the industry or in the literature. So I felt, and the need, it, it's not only the idea and the product, but the, the, the market need had to be there. And, and I realized that it was quickly becoming very a, a big problem in electronics as they increase the functionality and the miniaturization in in, uh, in the electronics industry and went from where computers filled whole rooms down to you know now look look what we have I mean it went from desktops to laptops to cell phones on and on and on it went so it was the increase in speed and functionality combined with that miniaturization that was made overheating a huge problem. 
You basically made an evergreen technology. Yes, and you know, the interesting thing was in those days, my, my process, I started with a clean piece of paper to develop these materials and my process was green. And I didn't get any kudos for that in those days, but it was, you know, and people, I mean, the Japanese would come and they'd be you know, looking for the, where I was flashing off solvents. They were looking for towers and all kinds of things. And they'd just go, where's the factory, where's the factory, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they were, yes, they were, yeah, they were trying to figure out what in the world I was doing. And I had even one Japanese guy tell, tell me one day that he would pay me a million dollars if I would let him into my factory. Oh my gosh, I said my blood pressure has never been higher. <laughs> I about exploded because, you know, I made it very clear that that was not an option. Oh my gosh. Oh, it was interesting. Well, well, <laughs> I, yes, well, I'm sure you've kept up with the pace of things. And, um, you know, what are some of the new innovations uh, in microchip manufacturing that uh, are of interest to you? Well, it was, it's an interesting question. First of all, I think it's important to, s to tell you that. Intel uh, discovered us. When they introduced the Pentium and they were trying to put it into notebook computers, they reached the wall. Now, Intel never calls you and tells you they have a heat problem. If you ask them, they had no heat problems. But the, my phone literally rang one day. I didn't even know that they had had samples of my materials. And they said, oh, by the way, they said, could, I, could you send us some samples and data sheets uh, because we're going to Asia and they need to get wear in Asia in the, like the next 10 days. So in the course of the conversation, they're very nonchalant about this. And of course I just play the same game. Yeah, well, well of course we can send you samples. And, and then the question came, uh, well, um, you have an agent in Taiwan. Well, I want you to know in those days, an agent in Taiwan wasn't even on my to-do list. <laughs> so, so I, but I said, oh, well, okay, no problem. I'll take care of it. And I did. <laughs> so by in these 10 days, we sent them the samples and our data sheets were um, off, off our computer. I mean, they weren't even printed and sent the samples. You know, the engineers could care less. All they care about is, is the data. And so, um, so, you know, I hung up the phone that day, really finding it impossible to realize what had just happened to us because we were chugging along, but it's always a credibility issue when you're some young new company that, you know, you're trying to create an image bigger than you are. And, and all of a sudden our name, I mean, then everybody was out to figure out what we were doing because they put us in their design guide for making, uh, for, for the for assembling the notebook computers, so Intel was never our customer. It was their customers that was that were our. So we weren't officially a part of the semiconductor industry per se. We were, as I say, a tip off the silicon, you know, a side business that came out of that. And that industry is called electronic packaging, and that is not the wrapping and the bow that goes around, but it is the interconnect system of the chip to, the, to whatever the system is. It's, it's mechanical, electrical, and thermal, and so it's very multidisciplinary, and that all has to work in order for all these things. So having said that, uh, when uh, I'm not an expert on microchip manufacturing, but I know that Moore's Law says that you can put two you can double the amount of transistors on a microchip 
every couple of years. And I know that right now they've kind of been stalled and that they need, they need uh, ultra thin mo um, mono layer materials to substitute for the silicon. And then the interconnect system of that very fine technology also becomes an issue. And they're making progress. And I mean, this will get solved and it will be mainstream soon, I, I believe. But when, so, so sort of back to your question. So when I talk about where all this new technology is going, whether it's in 5G or artificial intelligence or robotic, for me, my excitement is that I have had a passion from the very beginning in electro, electric cars and autonomous driving. And I was involved from the late 90s all the way through. I, it's, it's the end thing now, but it wasn't all these years. And I've been an avid fan of Elon Musk, needless to say. So that, that's where I think it's very exciting. Uh, let's actually talk um, about um, actually women in manufacturing, if I can uh, go there. Um, uh, you know, because you you developed uh, you know skills you know almost organically after your graduation, and uh, and your career you know provided the foundation for for leading this multi million dollar technology company. Um, you know, moving on to other manufacturers, uh, what can they do today to better support women to become leaders in the industry? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a very big question, and I I think that it's a challenge and it's a two-sided challenge. Somehow we have to create a collaboration between women and what it means to work in manufacturing. And, you know, I just read recently that women are more than twice as likely as men to request 100% remote work. And I think that there's there's some pluses to that and I, I but I think they are isolating themselves in many ways, particularly as it relates to manufacturing and their, their, it hampers creativity and brainstorming and, and all those things that make, that make life happen. It's about, you know, creativity to me, it's about un creating unlike things, ideas, products, things that then all of a sudden you have something new that you put together things that you didn't think would go together. So, and when I think of manufacturing, I mean, I, I personally get very excited, love to make things. And I, I, I see it as an act of doing, and it worries me on how we're going to combine those, those two things. So manufacturers, uh, there, there are things they can do. So I, I came up with this idea that I think that they, they need to create a buzz. They need to, uh, they need to really, there's 2 million jobs sitting there and the women are the largest pool for these jobs and we need to somehow get them in there. So I think we need to create a buzz about the manufacturing industry as collaborate or whatever about what this opportunity is and what it looks like and how great it could be and, and through social media or TV or whatever and they should use women who have succeeded as testimonials to, uh, to, sh to show as examples of how women can be successful in manufacturing. And, um, and also, uh, I had the other thing just slipped away. Um, 
oh, and you, they, you need to use them as ambassadors for for the next generation of women to come. And I think these, these kind of things we can do now. And I think that's what's exciting about it. I think there are longer term, well, and there, there are also other things in terms of manufacturing culture. I mean, women, women, I think there's been a lot of studies done. Women want interesting and, and challenging jobs. They want attractive pay and they want work-life balance. And so the manufacturing, I think that there's a compromise here and there's some kind of a remote hybrid model that we can put together where we can, we can give women flexibility and some work-life balance and still not have them be totally remote. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that that could happen. And I think that, um, uh, that manufacturers could, uh, be a little more less uh, dependent on present culture and be more results-driven culture, which would allow you to would lead to some of this this flexibility. And I think they well they could provide care, child care on site. I think that's something which was part of in my head actually when I had my business. Basically, I didn't have. I had a lot of women with children, but they were a little older as it turned out. Most of them were school age, I think, my, my employees. But I think that would have been something I would have seriously considered if I if I if the need really uh, had surfaced. Um, and uh, I think to provide advocates for women within a company is also something. And these are the kinds of things to be part of the buzz of what you intend to do. I mean, I never had an advocate, so I I really respect. I mean, it's nice to think your supervisor can be the advocate. I don't know, but you need an advocate with inside a company, inside an organization. I think. Yes. So, and, and the so great. That's, yeah. So, and it, long, more long term, we need to mobilize the education industry. We need to, we need more women in STEM, and we need to encourage that from a young age on through and bring people in, you know, tour tour facilities, whatever it takes to kind of create this buzz around how women can really have successful careers in manufacturing. So well, I've seen I've seen some progress there definitely in in the mentorship programs yeah. at least and yes. uh, and so uh, final thoughts on uh, what advice you would give women to as you've said separate themselves from the herd and lead with pure presence. Well, Yes, and how to make it in a man's world. I mean, you need, I think first and foremost, you need to be authentic. Be yourself and let your work, don't get hung up on demographics and who's in the room and and to try to one-up the men, that's never going to work, but you need to let your work be your, be your spokesperson. You need to, you know, present what it is you're doing towards your goals and use that as your differentiator and, have a presence, you know, have, have confidence and believe and articulate what your goals are and where you, what you think your value is in the proposition, whatever you're doing. I think all of these things, I, I was uh, really never considered myself a feminist. I, I, I never wanted to show up the men. I was never demanding equal time, equal money. It's just, not was not the way I did it. I was about taking my technology to market and do obtaining my goal, uh, however that needed to be done. 
I think in a world where there are so many, so many um, labels put on everybody and everything that uh, you need to rise above all that, ignore it. I, I was in so many meetings of all men that I didn't even notice after a while, it didn't make any difference. I mean, you ignore, you just ignore all that and do your thing and be authentic. To thine own self be true is what I like to say. <laughs> I think that's the best advice, general advice for everyone in all aspects, yes. That is a great place to end this discussion. Thank you so much, Carol, for telling your story. It's my pleasure, always a pleasure. I enjoyed it very much, thank you.